this is Chris Sorensen. Welcome to Brookville Road Community Church Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please take a moment to check out our website at brookvilleroad.cc for all the latest information about what's going on at Community Church. I hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in becoming a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. As we think about what we're talking about today, the, the idea is a, a practical atheist practical atheism. And what is that? What is it to, to be a practical atheist? Well, if you're an atheist, it means that you don't believe that there's a God and then you live your life as if there's no God. If you're a practical atheist, you believe that there is a God and yet you still live your life as there is no God. That's a practical atheist. I believe in God, but I don't really believe in God. I don't really put my trust in him. When we got together the first week, we said a practical atheist would say, I believe in God, but I don't know him. I don't really have a relationship with him. And last week we got together and we said, uh, I believe in God, but I don't fear him. I believe in God, but I don't want to do what he wants me to do. I want to do what I want to do. And our theme verse comes from uh, Titus 1 verse 16, where it says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They know that there is a God. They think that there is a God, but by the way that they live, they're living a, a detestable life and they're unfit for any good work. Now, today, as we think about this idea, we're going to talk about the fact that a practical atheist is somebody who would say, I I believe that there's a God, I just don't trust him. I believe there's a God, I don't trust him. I brought with me today a a $50 bill. Uh, And on the back of the $50 bill, it says, in God we trust. And I'm glad that it says that on the back of our bill. But the way in which we live our lives, we don't live as if that's true. Many people don't live as if it truly is in God we trust. It's really in the money that we trust. Today we're talking about the fact that you can believe that there's a God, but you really trust money to help you out, to see you through. And there's a lot that the Bible has to say about this. And I realize that every time I start talking about money as a pastor or a church talks about this, everybody kind of turns sideways and there's just a lot of skepticism that comes with that. I want you to know I'm not interested in your money. I don't want something from you. I want something for you. The church is in good shape. Uh, there, there's no like major need. Again, I've already told you all, you're very, very generous. When, when I talk about money, I'm, I'm interested in what's happening in your heart and your life. I, I know in my own heart and my own life, when it comes to money, being, being able to rightly see it the way that God sees it has really freed me up and has brought me a lot of joy. And I want the same thing for you. We don't pass an offering plate around here. We really don't make a big deal out of it. The thing that I want to do, and I, I just know, I talk about money and the tension rises, and that's okay to a, a degree because tension creates attention, so that's good. But what I would say is, rather than maybe you feeling guilt by whatever is being said from a guy, if there is conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit in the way that you are looking at possessions and money and stuff, let it fall. I mean, just let it hit, let it land on your heart and let God do his work. And so that's my motivation because the Bible says so much about this. Jesus said, you you can't serve two masters. You're gonna hate the one or love the other. You can't serve God and money. He said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And yet so many people, they treasure money and they don't treasure God. And our hearts, they can't be in two places at once. It can't be in two places. It can't be with God and with money. And so there's so much that's uh, spoken about this, and we really do. We put our trust in money. What are some ways that we put our trust in money? Well, one way that we trust money, we trust that money is going to bring us happiness. Now, none of us would, you know, come right out and say, yeah, money buys happiness. But deep down, 
we do believe that it could make us happier, right? I think, you know, if I had that car or that home, I would be happier. If I got that raise, I'd be happier. If I had more in the bank, I'd be happier. We wouldn't say that out loud, but we believe that money buys happiness. And the reason that I say in general that we say that kind of thing, because in our culture, we're just loaded down with debt. Now, I know that sometimes debt comes our way because we have medical expenses and it just, it's crazy. But for the most part in our culture, it's consumer debt. We consume things because we believe that money will make us happy. And so if I consume this thing, I am trusting and believing it will bring me joy. And when that thing doesn't really bring me all the joy that I want, I keep going out and I buy more and bigger and better and faster and shinier because deep down we believe money will buy us happiness. It'll bring us a sense of joy in our lives. Another way that we trust that, that in money is we trust that it'll give us security. We trust that we'll be secure. And in that way, uh, money becomes really kind of this functional savior that we have. We believe that money will save us, like if we have enough in the bank. And, and for me, this is where I lean. This is where the danger is for me. I, I just, I want security in my life. For our family, we get rid of debt as soon as we can. We, we make sure that we're trying to live debt-free, and we say we're doing that to be good stewards, and we are. But for Chris, if you would pull back the layers, there's a fear underneath all of that where I just believe if I have enough money in the bank, I feel better. I feel secure. It's a functional savior. Right? Don't take the thing that's going to bring me some safety and some security and a sense of, of happiness and peace in my life. Again, we say we know that there's a God, but very, very practically, we end up putting our trust in money. And again, the Bible has a lot to say about this. And one of the places that I want us to look just briefly here is 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says this, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. They've pierced themselves with many pangs. Pangs is painful emotions. Now, let me ask you, is money evil? Hello? <laughs> no, money's not evil. Uh, is, is the thing that money can buy evil? Not necessarily. What, what is it that he's saying is evil? The love of money is leading to all kinds of evil. He's talking about greed. He's talking about that desire to acquire that ends up going haywire. He's saying we need to be on our guard against greed in our lives because it's gonna lead us astray. Some people, because they have been greedy, because they've put this ahead of God, they've wandered from the faith. They have a different God. Their God is not God. Their God is money. Then we find this, Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Bottom line, you can't serve God in money. They didn't come out in this particular passage and say, well, you can't serve God in power. You can't serve God in success. You can't serve God in leisure. No, he says you can't serve both God and money because Jesus knows the number one competitor for your heart and my heart, it's money. For where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. And he's saying it is a false God. It is an idol that gets built up in our lives. God wants us to worship, love, serve, honor him, and use money. It's fine to use money. Money's neutral. But all too often, we end up loving and serving and worshiping money and using God. And the thing that all of us have to watch is the drift of our heart to put our trust and our hope in finances, in possessions, 
rather than putting all of our trust and all of our hope in the one true God. So today what I want to do, I want to look at two gentlemen who had an encounter with Jesus. The first one we're going to find is in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 19. Now this first guy uh, that we're going to see, he is a, he's a rich young man. Uh, I imagine he's probably well-educated. He's probably respected by others. He's a sharp individual. And I would say that this rich young man actually represents all of mankind. And he has a very important question that he wants to ask Jesus. We find this, Matthew 19, verse 16. And behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, teacher, some versions start out with good teacher. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So this is a great question. This man probably admired Jesus. He sees him as a good teacher, and he has a very important question. What am I going to do in order to get to heaven? What, what is the standard? How do I get there? It's a great question. And then Jesus responds to his question with a question. Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? You hear the term good coming up over and over and over. Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. So let's stop there for a second. There's only one who is good, Jesus says. Now, some scholars say, well, Jesus is denying his deity here. He's saying that he is not God. There's only one God, and that God is good, and I'm not him. But that's not the case. Jesus already knows he's speaking with an individual who doesn't know that Jesus is God because he's been referred to as a good teacher. Good teacher. He doesn't say Lord. He doesn't say Son of Man, Son of God. Good teacher. And so Jesus says there's only one who is good. You want to know how to get to heaven. You think you get to heaven by being good. Now, you have to know that there's a standard anytime you start using the term good. And the standard that God says for good is God. There's nobody else. The inference is nobody's good. There's only one who's good, and that's God. And we kind of, kind of get that kind of thing because in our culture, we're wise enough to say nobody's perfect. That's pretty easy to say. Nobody's perfect. Yet at the same time, we think but we're good. Like there's good people. And our standard for good isn't God. Our standard for good is always other people. But that's not the way that it's supposed to work. Our goodness, because we're better than somebody else, doesn't get us to heaven. But you ask somebody, you know, are they good? Yeah, I'm good. Why are you good? Because I'm better than Bill. You ask Bill if he's good. Yeah, he's, he's good because he's better than Tim. You ask Tim if he's good, yeah, he's better than so-and-so, and on and on and goes, and it's just a dangerous thing. And the Bible tells us there's only one who's good. Nobody, no human being, is good. No one has done righteously. Everyone is a sinner, and they fall short of the glory of God. And if you're going to get to this place in heaven that's perfect, and you think you're going to get there by being good based on your standard of your neighbor, who's not all that good because nobody's perfect, you're not going to get there. What's good? But you want to know how to get to heaven? All right. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. I just want to say right here, Jesus is setting him up. It is a very interesting interaction. And so the young man's ears kind of perk up. Okay, great. There's a standard here. And the standard is law, the commandments. And so the young man says this. Which ones? Which one of the laws? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. The young man's like, I haven't done that yet. You shall not commit adultery, all right? You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Jesus is putting the cookies on the bottom shelf. He's given the the easiest commandments to obey. These are the secondary issues within the commandments. 
bottom shelf. And the young man's thinking, this is great. I'm heading to heaven. He goes on, honor your father and mother. He's like, "Eh, I think so. And then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man's thinking, I've done all this. I've known all this since I was a little boy. I've been a good boy. I'm good. I'm on my way to heaven. So he's going to justify himself in front of Jesus. He says, all these I've kept, which do I still lack? And so Jesus in this moment, I think he's just very respectful, very merciful, if you will, and doesn't just blow this kid out of the water, right? He, he, he's, he's not even kind of drilling down because I think he realizes, okay, this young man, he wasn't at the sermon the other day when I was preaching on the mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, when I said that if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. He wasn't there when I said that if you have hatred in your heart towards somebody else, it's as if you've committed murder. I get it, you, you weren't there, but quite honestly, you've not kept these commandments since you woke up this morning. And now Jesus is gonna to respond to him in a very unique way. And just for this young man, this, what we're about to read is not a law. It is not a commandment for you and I to follow. It is for this young man, and this is what Jesus says. And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, because you want to get to a perfect place called heaven where God is completely perfect and holy, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So why did Jesus say this to this particular young man? I believe it's because he's a practical atheist. He believed that there was a God, but he trusted in his wealth. He trusted in his possessions. Jesus is saying, there is something that's more important to you than God. As we're talking about the commandments, you couldn't get past the first one, young man. You shall have no other gods before you. And your God, it's money. It's possessions. And Jesus put his finger on the heart and the soul of this young man. And said, quite honestly, you love possessions more than your heavenly father. What are you going to choose? What will this young man choose? When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He wouldn't trade the things of this world for the kingdom of God. And doesn't that happen for all of us? Isn't that the temptation for all of us to put the things of this world in front of God? I mean, don't so many people, they end up watching more shows on TV or their phone in one day than they spend time in prayer with God all week or all month. Don't many people end up spending more on their coffee habit annually than they do giving to kingdom causes? I'll make it personal for me, for me. Don't I spend more time thinking about how I can make more money over how I can give more money? The question in our lives is who's number one? Who's gonna take priority? What sets itself up on the throne of our heart? This rich young man was unwilling to let go of his grasp of all of the things in order to grab hold of the kingdom of God. And he's willing to walk away. Jesus said, what does it profit? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? 
What good is it, friend, if you get everything you've ever dreamed of attaining in your life and a a dollar amount or even all the money in the world and all of the gold and all of the silver and everything that you could possibly wrap your arms around and making that your God and yet you forfeit your soul because you've not made the one true God the center of your life. What good is that? And so this young man puts his head down It's one of the most sorrowful things you ever see, and he walks away. And as he walks away, Jesus turns to his disciples. He said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And we think, yep, too bad for all those rich people. Not realizing that we're the rich people. We are rich. He's speaking to us in this room, watching. We're rich, but we never think we're rich. Everybody else is rich. I can explain how this kind of works. Uh, in, in my neighborhood, I live on the east side of Indy. I'm on the other side of the tracks, other side of the county. I'm telling you, in my neighborhood, we don't think we're rich. All the rich people live over here in Hancock County. And you talk to the people in Hancock County, they're going to say, we're not rich. All the rich people are over in Carmel. You go over to Carmel and go in those neighborhoods and they'll say, we're not rich. All the rich people are over in Geist. You go to Geist and they'll say, have you seen the Hamptons? It's always somebody else. It's not us. We're not rich. It's always like a level above us. We're, we're middle class. And then you kind of keep working your way up. I'm upper middle class. But never are we rich. Friend, you are rich. Let me just remind you, 60% of the people in this world live on three to four dollars a day. Do you have a toilet in your house? You're rich. Six out of ten people in the world don't have indoor plumbing. You got a car? Two cars? Three? You're rich. Do you have heat and air conditioning? Rich, rich, rich. That's us. We are rich. And Jesus looks at us and he says, it is so difficult. I am so sorry. It is difficult for you. It is a challenge for you to let go of all of that stuff, for you not to put your trust in everything that you have in the bank, everything that you've accumulated for yourself, and not Trust in me. You and I, we don't know the joy of coming before our heavenly father, bowing in prayer and saying, Father, give me this day, just today, enough bread to eat. And then watching as miraculously, God gives us just enough to eat for this day. We have enough to eat this day, the next day, probably for weeks around us. We are rich challenge for you and for me is to not put our trust in this, but to put our trust and our faith in our heavenly father. Another rich man, another chapter 19, but this time in Luke. As we go to Luke chapter 19, you may recall this individual. This individual, he's despised. People don't like this rich guy. Uh, you'll understand who he is in a moment. He's short of stature. We might call him a wee little man. Who are we talking about? Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus, he is a 
chief tax collector. He is, he is in charge of all the other IRS agents. And everybody dislikes this guy because he's working for the enemy. He's working for Rome that has come in and conquered them. They're oppressing them. And he's working on their behalf to collect taxes for them. And not just for them. Zacchaeus bumps up his charge so that he can take his cut and get rich off of his fellow countrymen. People despise this guy. Nobody likes him. And Jesus is coming through that area. And Zacchaeus wants to see him. But there's such a crowd that we little man can't see over the crowd. So he climbs up into a sycamore tree. And Jesus is passing by. And as he gets under that tree, he says, scamper down here, sport. I'm coming to your house today. And down comes the little Danny DeVito looking guy. And they're going to have lunch. Now, we don't know what Jesus said at the lunch, but I just like to imagine that that when God is sitting down in your midst and it has been a divine appointment and God has determined that somebody who is lost is going to now be found and in the presence of God, whatever is said, there's a change. And that happens to Zacchaeus, whom God had arranged to put a tree in a spot and Jesus walking through on a particular day and this meal, something happens He's affected, and Zacchaeus says, he stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What's happening in this moment is authentic repentance for Zacchaeus. Jesus, I've seen you, I have encountered you, and you are more important than anything else. All of the money, all of the stuff that I have accumulated, that no longer holds sway on me. It doesn't hold my heart. You hold my heart. I see that you're the Messiah that I've been waiting for. You are the King. You are the Savior. You are now my Lord, he has repented. And what does Jesus say? And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Not today a savior has come to this house. Today salvation has come to this house. It wasn't just a savior passing by. Now he is the savior and Lord bringing salvation to one who is lost. Since he also is a son of Abraham, for the son of man, that's Jesus referencing himself prophetically, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Without Christ's salvation, you are lost. Any kind of dependence upon your own goodness, as we saw in the rich young man, won't get you to heaven. Any understanding just simply that Jesus is somebody who died for your sins and you leave it there, not enough. He must be more than your savior. He must be your Lord and he is to be worshiped alone more than money, more than anything else in your life. And salvation came to that house. Salvation didn't come because Zacchaeus gave half. He gave half because salvation had come. And the grip of greed, the grip of that false idol was let loose. And Zacchaeus is a new man. He recognized, Jesus, you're worth more than anything else. And I'd rather grab a hold of you and your truth and your life than any kind of money, anything that this world would offer me. In light of all that stuff, you are more important. He would say, I believe in God and I trust him. And yet in my heart, and your heart, we have this tendency to drift. And in our culture that keeps screaming at us, man, if you could just have what's shinier and better and bigger, you would be happy. It is so much more appealing when the world starts getting hold of my heart. But 
there's something that happens for the follower of Christ when we begin to, to look at Christ as the Savior, as our God. It begins to let loose of that grip of greed in our hearts. I am so much more like in tune with what God wants when I am paying attention and close to Christ. We used to sing a song uh, growing up. It was called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Remember Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Why is that? As I look into the face of Jesus, I find my identity. I find wholeness. I find contentment in him. And all of that stuff that kept screaming to me, that false God, that false idol, it begins to lose its grip on me. And I would just say, if in your life, you keep getting pulled to bigger, better, faster, shinier. I would just say very lovingly, very respectfully, it may be because you're not close to Christ. It may be because you're looking more at God's hands than his face. You're looking more at God, what can you give me? God, will you bless me? God, will you prosper me? And you're looking at his hands rather than looking into the face of God and finding love and grace for you. It is the place that we find contentment. I've had a number of people uh, in my life over this last week tell me that they believe in God, but they just don't feel it. They just don't have a close relationship with him. They long to have it. And I believe that by God's grace and my prayers and our conversations and the power of the spirit of God, that they will come to this place where they begin to look into the glorious face of Jesus Christ and everything else in this world begins losing its grip and they find contentment and joy in him. Here's what Paul said, again, 1 Timothy chapter six. Timothy's at a church in Ephesus. In Ephesus, those folks were rich. It was a port city. I've been to Ephesus. It's in modern day Turkey. And I can tell you they're rich because I went into somebody's rich home. I don't know who owned it. But built into the hillside, it's called the, these terrace homes. And we walked in and we discovered they had hot and cold running water in those homes. They had heat and air conditioning that they would utilize in these homes. There were mosaics, beautiful mosaics still in those walls. They were just like us, rich. Paul says, First Timothy six seventeen. as for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with, how much? Everything to enjoy. God richly provides us everything to enjoy. If you believe that you have to provide everything for yourself and you are striving and going after it yourself, you will not find joy. You will not find peace. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. And all those other things are things like clothes and food and shelter. Seek me first. Your heavenly father will provide for you. He knows that you need it. And as he's providing everything for you to enjoy, you'll find life and peace through him. And we would say as followers of Jesus Christ, not just practical atheists, when we come to know Jesus, our hearts begin to open up. And we say, well, the money doesn't mean what it used to mean for me. All these possessions don't mean. And we become just radically generous. And yet... In our culture, people who call themselves Christians don't live that way. 
And we have to come face to face with the facts. And so I started doing some research. What are we actually doing with our money? Now again, I don't know. I, I, we're a generous bunch. And I don't know what anybody in here gives. I have no idea. So you can just say, well, he's not talking about us. That's fine. But in general, 2018 statistics tell us that people who come to church between 10% and 25% tithe. That means one out of 10 or two out of 10 actually return a first portion, 10% back to God, which means eight out of 10 or nine out of 10 tip God if they've got something left over. Christians in the United States are now returning to God 2.5%. And you have to compare that with the Great Depression when they were giving 3.3%. We return less now to God than we did proportionally when we had less. Of adults that attend churches, again, not, I'm not saying it's here. If you walk into a congregation, general adult is giving about $17 a week. And yet we say, no, God's number one. And I believe just personally, and we can, we can talk about this more, and you're welcome to talk to me. I just believe that if you set aside proportionally for God first, and, and for me, I see it as 10%, you set that apart for God as the first fruits going back to him, man, it just changes everything. People will say when you start talking about that thing, if I do that, I'm going to have to change my lifestyle. Yeah, that's how it works. God comes first. I'm down the line. And yet we have people who give God leftovers whatever might be left over after they've consumed for themselves and set up security for themselves. And here's the deal. When it comes to money, does God need the money? He's God. He can make more money. He has no needs. He is sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't need your money. You know what he wants? Your heart. You know what the number one competitor for your heart is? Money. And so by letting loose of the money, by putting him first and saying, here, this, this is yours, it begins to loosen its grip. That's hard for us. There's not a person in this room, I believe, that hasn't at some point, and even right now, struggle with this. All of us struggle with this, and it's not unique to us, friends. So I don't want you feeling bad, like, oh, it's just me, and he's talking to me. No, people have been doing this since the beginning. God's talked about this all the way back into the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, he would go to his people and he'd say, hey, I want you to love me and I want you to bring a sacrifice to me. Here's what I want you to bring. I want you to bring your best lamb and sacrifice it to me. And they started thinking, bring my best lamb? My best lamb. This is the one that's gonna bring the most at market. How about I bring you the lamb? They're thinking this in their head. How about I bring you the lamb that's on its last leg? Like literally, three are gone, one's left. Oh, I've got this other one over here. It's kind of raggedy and scraggly and it's got a bald spot near its butt. Can't see out of one eye. I'll take God that one. What does God say to this? Malachi 1. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. Bottom line is, we don't trust God to take care of us. I'm gonna take my best lamb, I'm gonna sell it at market so that I can guarantee that I've got money for me. God can't be trusted. It's practical atheism. We believe there's a God. 
But do we trust him? When we begin to build our lives around him and we joyfully return to him out of a generous heart, it begins to let loose of that grip of greed. I like King David's philosophy. There's this little verse in 2 Samuel chapter 24. David, the king, wants to offer a sacrifice to God, and he doesn't have any animals around him to do that very thing. So somebody comes along, he says, hey, I'll just give you some oxen. You can use those, and you can sacrifice it. And this is what David says. No, no, but I'll buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. You see, in reality for us, the challenge becomes we think, okay, I'll give to God if there's anything left over. If it doesn't impinge on my standard of living, then there will be something for him. Look, I, I understand the weight of this. I get it. I feel it too. And I don't want to preach this in such a way that you walk out of here feeling guilty for what you have. Like, if you're going to walk out of here and you're going to a nice car, I don't know what you drive. You always leave before me. If you're going to walk out of here and you're like, man, I have a nice car out there. I'm not quite sure I want to walk to my car after this message. I'm going to hang around and do something else. Look, you get in your car and you thank God for it because God is the one who blesses his children and we have no idea where your heart is, not a clue. All I'm asking you to do, I'm not asking you to feel guilty about what you have. I am asking you to take inventory, take stock and confront wherever you have put this above your heavenly father and you invite him to invade your heart because friends, we don't wanna be practical atheists. We, we don't want to be people who say, yeah, I believe that there's a God. I just don't trust him. This God is looking for faith from you and from me and for faithfulness from his people. I, I want us to live in such a way that our hearts are growing closer to our heavenly father and the things of this world are getting increasingly dim in the light of his glory and his grace poured into our hearts through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all of my friends in this room, for each heart that wrestles with what's happening just when it comes to money and finances and and the desire to have more. Lord, we all feel it. There is this tension. But Lord, we would pray that just as you came in front of that rich young ruler and you offered him the opportunity to walk away from a false God and to truly embrace you. Lord, I pray for that, for my friends. Just as you came to Zacchaeus, someone who was lost and they had built a world around themselves. Father, many of us in this room, we're lost. We don't know you yet. Father, would you reveal yourself to them? Lord, we understand that you are a giving God. You've sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. You're a giving God. You allowed him to rise from the dead so that we might be given your spirit and given life. And in that, we rejoice. And because of all that you have done, you can be trusted now and forever with everything. You are Lord of all. I pray that we would live that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love for you to join us at one of our weekend worship services. For service times and information about BRCC, be sure to check out brookvillroad.cc. God bless you.